I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 13th, 2018. Coming up, we'll discuss how spending time in nature, and even just living in urban neighborhoods for that matter, that have a healthy amount of trees, can help improve your health. Our three guests are Dr. Ted Smith, a pharmacological and toxicologist at the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Kentucky, Christopher Hawkins, Urban Conservation Program Manager at the Nature Conservancy here in Colorado, and Jeanette Hyung, founder of Outdoor RX Collaborative, a national network of leaders from the outdoor and healthcare industries working to improve public health through the nature-based recreation. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. People have been living in the high mountains of the Andes for over 2,500 meters for over 10,000 years. Living in such an extreme environment meant adapting to it by cultural, biological, and even genetic processes. These modifications include the development of agricultural economies, relatively high population densities, and a hierarchical social system. But what about changes to their biology? In Tibet, Humans adapted to the elevation by increasing the efficiency of oxygen delivery in the blood. To address this question, a multidisciplinary team, including scientists from the U.S., Chile, and Germany, sequenced the genomes from seven people who lived in the Peruvian Andes from 6,800 years ago to about 1,800 years ago. They compared those genomes to genetic data from two modern populations. One from high elevations in Bolivia, and a second from the lowlands in Chile. The genetic differences among these three populations indicate that they have been separated for almost 9,000 years. One genetic change in the highland DNA showed up in genes related to starch digestion. Because the starchy potato was domesticated in the Andes and quickly became a dietary staple, this adaptation makes sense. They did not find a single genetic change, like in the Tibetans, to explain high-altitude physiology, but they did see some intriguing changes in genes controlling the cardiovascular system that argue for a complex adaptation. A major environmental event occurred when Europeans colonized the region. The highland population declined by about a quarter after the European contact but a shocking 97% of lowland population died off, probably due to conflicts that lasted into the 1800s. One genetic trace of the European conquest is an immune system protein that responds to smallpox, a disease carried by the invaders. Only the people who could survive smallpox reproduced, sending that gene into their descendants. This study which highlights the ongoing process of human evolution, was published last week in the journal Science Advances. So everyone wants more energy. Energy drinks, in fact, are booming business. And since they're often marketed as nutritional supplements, there's little regulation about what's in them. That's a concern for many health professionals. They include John Higgins. He's a professor of cardiovascular medicine at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. He says, as the drinks get more popular, more adverse effects, events are being reported, including heart problems, digestion, hormone, and even psychiatric symptoms being tagged in emergency rooms among people 
where the only usual thing they've done is to down a few energy drinks. That's why his research team decided to check out the effect of a popular energy drink on medical students. Higgins says that the energy drink they tested is called Monster. Monster energy drink, it's their kind of main one, and it's just called Monster. It's, they have a whole range, but this one is just the standard Monster energy drink. It comes in a black can with a, a green symbol on the front. Unfortunately, a lot of the energy drinks are not transparent, you know, in terms of what's actually specifically in them. I mean, the common denominator is that they all have pretty much sugar. There are some that are sugar-free, but most of them have a lot of sugar. They have a lot of caffeine. And then they have this third component, which is this kind of energy blend, things like taurine, glucuronolactone, yohimbine, also lots of vitamins, and particularly the B vitamins. So they'll have, you know, B1, B3, B12. The percents of these are often very high, you know, like 2,000% of the recommended daily allowance for these. Higgins says that the combination of these ingredients may be part of why they cause adverse reactions, but they often contain more sugar per swallow than a soda, and that alone is a cause for concern. Absolutely. I mean, if if someone has prediabetes or diabetes, that can mess up things with their blood sugar levels and their insulin resistance. But also, importantly, this is one of the reasons why we don't like children consuming them because this is going to contribute to their overweight and obesity, which is, you know, something that we're trying to reduce because that's a growing problem that we have. Certainly sugar. And then, you know, once they get this very high level of sugar in their blood and then it goes down, so they often will get a crash. After that, they get the feeling like they have all of this energy with the sugar and the caffeine. And then when that goes down, then they kind of feel weak and tired. And and that's unfortunately when oftentimes they'll reach for another can. We've noted in a lot of the people that have run into side effects that oftentimes they'll be consuming more than one in a single session. Most research about energy drinks has been funded by the energy drink companies themselves. And no surprise, it mostly indicates that they are great. Higgins decided to have his university team do an independent test. So they recruited nearly 50 healthy medical students to have a common assessment that measures how much their blood vessels expand after being in a blood pressure cuff. Before drinking a Monster Energy drink, their blood vessels expand by around 5%, which is pretty typical and healthy expansion. They had each medical student drink a Monster Energy drink Then do the blood pressure cuff test 90 minutes later. This time, their blood vessel expansion was reduced by nearly half, meaning it went from a 5% expansion down to a 2.8% expansion. Higgins says this is significant. If you think about the fact that this is going on throughout pretty much all of your blood vessels in your body, especially when you're exercising, and that any reduction in that can potentially lead to consequences, then this is a very significant change. The U.S. Navy, in fact, if they have a pilot, their aircraft pilots, if one of their pilots has consumed an energy drink, they are not allowed to fly a jet plane for the next 24 hours because of their concerns of the adverse effects on their ability to perform both mentally and physically. Think about that next time you're flying in a commercial airplane. That's John Higgins from the University of Texas Medical School. He says there needs to be more independent studies and regulation of energy drinks. We did request an interview about this with a company that makes Monster Energy Drink. They've not responded. On the science calendar tonight, the Colorado Springs 
Café Scientifique presents a discussion titled Unsettled Waters, Reconciling 19th Century Water Law, 20th Century Infrastructure, and 21st Century Climate Change. The speaker is Dr. Eric Paramond from Colorado College. Dr. Paramond will discuss how, in the American West, water lawsuits are adversarial, expensive, and lengthy. And the book Unsettled Waters is the first detailed study of water adjudications in New Mexico. Based on more than 10 years of field work, it tells a story of resistance involving communal water culture, native rights, and cleaved identities, clashing experts, and unintended outcomes. That's tonight, starting at 6.30 at the Café Scientifique, held at Clyde's Pub on the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs campus. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So guess what? Nature is good for you. I know, I know, it sounds so obvious, right? Especially here in Colorado. Whether it's a walk in the woods that helps you calm your nervous system and spark novel ideas, or a wilderness retreat that helps to reduce symptoms of PTSD or ADHD. But little is actually understood about how nature offers healing effects. What are the mechanisms? How much nature is enough? And to do what? And how enduring are these effects, or should they be? By nature, I don't just mean the likes of Yellowstone or Rocky Mountain National Park. Beautiful, yes, but far away and inaccessible for so many people. Nature abounds in cities, too. Well, some of them, anyway. Today's show is the first in a series we'll offer on the connections between nature and human health. It's called Nature Rx. Our three guests today are working on this in this nexus between environmental conservation and human health to make cities part of the solution. Dr. Ted Smith joins us via phone from Louisville, Kentucky. He's the director of the Center of Healthy Air, Water, and Soil at the University of Louisville's Environment Institute. Welcome, Dr. Smith. It's great to be here. Thank you. And our other two guests are with us in the studio. Christopher Hawkins is the Urban Conservation Program Manager at the Nature Conservancy in Colorado. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. And Jeanette Hung, founder of Outdoor RX Collaborative a national network of leaders from the outdoor and healthcare industries working to improve public health through nature-based recreation. Thanks so much for being here, Jeanette. Thank you. So I want to start with you, Dr. Smith, in uh, Kentucky. Maybe set the stage. I know we've got a broad, broad realm here, but we've got this mix of human population moving into cities. We've got increasing health problems. What, what's your sort of characteristic of this the global context here? Yeah, I, I think this is um, truly a fascinating uh, time to be pondering what is probably an age-old question about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of a nature-nurture, quite literally, uh, kind of a matter. So we're all moving to cities. We've, uh, as creatures, we've designed these places. And, um, you know, we've designed them, you know, generally speaking, without regard for perhaps our dependence and reliance for our health and well-being on nature. And we've been sort of escaping nature to make cities. 
And at the same time, as you pointed out, you know, we have um, this epidemic rise in non-communicable diseases, chronic diseases, like diabetes, like heart disease, mm. like many cancers. These are, um, these are relatively new in the big time frame of humanity. So we have sort of two newish things happening. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not. Uh, and we're very interested in, um, in looking at nature and health um, in, a, in a very sort of um, high-stakes kind of way. I mean, what, what is it about nature that um, may be health-promoting? What is it about um, lack of nature that may be disease-promoting? Uh, and I think it's, it's worthy of our, uh, our time and attention these days. And in a bit, we'll get into the specific, really important clinical trial that you're doing on this Nature RX question there in uh, Louisville. Chris Hawkins of Nature Conservancy, I want to jump to you, too, because it seems historically looking at cities and air, well, air pollution, yes, but cities and people living in cities and the health connection has not really been part of the Conservancy or other conservation groups' mission, but things are really shifting, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. I think that's 100% right. I think, um, you know, we've seen for a long time uh, for organizations like the Nature Conservancy is uh, a real focus on big, wild, open spaces. And, uh, and those really, big, charismatic exactly. fauna in them. And charismatic they are. And I think one thing we forget is that there's a big, charismatic species that's <laughs> dominating the world right now that we really need to start thinking about and really start thinking about how nature is not apart from us, but really a part of us and how we... Mm. Uh, build the places we live. We now, as a globe, majority of us live in cities. Um, how do we make sure that these places are thriving places, not just for people, but for nature for the long haul? In fact, um, give the global statistics. I think it's fascinating. Just how, how big is and how rapid is this human migration to cities? Yeah, the largest uh, migration uh, in human history. Um, we're talking about billions of people um, who have now shifted from a primarily um, rural and agrarian lifestyle to cities um, that's happening all over the world in uh, pretty much every country. And I think I read in the UN report that by t mid-century, something like 80% of the human population yeah, is right. expected yep. to live in metropolitan areas. Yeah, that's, that's huge. That's exactly right. Yep. And Jeanette Hung, um, you here in Colorado, I just would love to have you address this connection between not just nature is good for you, but you're working in this realm of trying to, I think, influence healthcare insurers to actually see nature as an intervention, a health intervention. Describe a, a bit of that and what you've been doing on that front. Yeah, so nationally, we're seeing a lot of initiatives around this intersection of outdoor and health. So I've been working with the outdoor industry and also healthcare industry to look at opportunities. So we are seeing more and more partnerships where the, the, the environmental and outdoor sectors are partnering with the healthcare entities to refer more patients from a clinical setting to parks and recreation opportunities, including my work with the governor's office in the past year, where we created this pilot working with Ted, and he'll speak more about that, looking into the nature health benefits to community programs where um, the clinical setting, we have partnerships where the doctors prescribe parks and recreation time and partnering with local recreation entities. And just let's say one or two examples of where you are seeing the outdoor industry and the healthcare industry and doctors or hospitals working together on this. So on the western slope we were able to create this pilot where um, 
Rocky Mountain Health Plan approved this pilot to refer the low-income Medicaid patients to from from a clinical setting to local parks and recreation agencies. So that that I think is a big win. From a clinical setting, meaning that rather than going to have your heart checked by a doctor, yes, you're going to spend a half hour in nature and then we'll check it later or what? Yeah, and having them go spend time in rec parks, time, time spent in parks, um, time spent in recreation centers, and the insurer is going to subsidize the initial visits. And any data from it? We, um, we are gradually going to incorporate data collection from the beginning of this pilot. So the idea is that if it does prove efficacy, it can further expand to other offerings and, uh, in a, and provide that kind of program in bigger scale. Oh. And speaking of bigger scale, uh, Ted Smith of University of Louisville, I'd love you to address this big, seems like very unique, clinical trial that's just getting underway in your city. And, and first, what, why? Why in Louisville? Give us a little context. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we have an ambitious project. Uh, let me give you the project and then, then the why. Yeah. So uh, we have an ambitious project that essentially is um, the aim is to really demonstrate whether there's um, a causal relationship between uh, net greenery, green, you know, whether it's trees and bushes, whatever greenery is, um, between greenery and health outcomes. And there's a there's a lot of literature, all of it for the most part correlational studies. You know, people who live in green places live longer; they have lower you know risks of disease and all of that. But you can't uh, you can't generally assign people to live places, right? So um, it's uh, it defies the scientific uh, method. And so you know we uh, have had the great fortune of a partnership with the Nature Conservancy and funding from the National Institutes of Health to essentially do a large controlled trial in four neighborhoods in Louisville, Kentucky, um, looking at uh, the role that green can play to improve health outcomes. And our very specific uh, hypothesis is that one thing that greenery does in cities is uh, removes ambient air pollution. And we know there's a, a very robust literature on the connection between air pollution, particulate matter, and heart disease. It's a well-established factual matter. And so now what we're trying to do is introduce nature as if it's a drug hmm. uh, in a drug trial. And we're going to be planting uh, you know, thousands of mature trees and bushes in, uh, in an area that uh, doesn't have much. Um, but has people living in it, right? So and we'll X have a unit, control area that doesn't get planted, yeah. Right, so like X unit of nature could be yep. the equivalent or alternative to statin or... Well, so, so well, that would maybe a diabetic exactly drug. The, the notion yeah. in the background is that, you know, because we understand um, what are other ways that we can reduce the risk of heart disease, statins are a great example, um, we can come up with a, you know, kind of a dose-response curve for nature, just like we've done for statins as it relates to heart disease. And so that's, that's a, it's a five-year project. We're, uh, we're just recruiting folks right now. Uh, it's, uh, it'll have 700 people uh, fully recruited in it, 350 in the control, and 350 uh, living near new greenery. And we're you know, very excited to learn what we're going to learn. Fascinating. Um, we'll 
continue on with this, but I want to take a little station break. You're listening to KGNU Community Radio. For those who are just tuning in, we're in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, and Netherlands, and reachable, of course, across the globe at KGNU.org. We're discussing this nature health connection with three guests, Dr. Ted Smith of the University of Louisville School of Medicine, Christopher Hawkins of Nature Conservancy here in Colorado, and Jeanette Hong, who is a management consultant, had worked with the state in this uh, health outdoor space. So a little bit more, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Smith, about the Louisville study. So it all sounds great on the one hand, at least on paper. Gee, plant more trees. And these are big trees you're talking about, like moving 40-foot trees into neighborhoods. But I wonder, like, what's been the response and how are you incorporating response from actual communities? Some of them pretty low income. Some of them don't have many trees and yet hit by opioid crisis, hit by you know major effects from prostitution, drug overdose, crime, you name it, and how to get buy-in, or actually how to see the relevance of tree planting relative to really immediate problems and immediate interventions, medically speaking. Sure. Well, you know, it's, um, it's a challenge, you know, to do work like this. Um, you know, uh, research studies, uh, you know, in communities um, have a um, a kind of a charged recent history, you know, people, you know, don't like to be studied, you know, as, as if they're, you know, rats mm-hmm. in a cage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so our orientation, you know, this is our community. We all live, uh, we live in Louisville together. Uh, and so we're, we're not going to study some faraway group of people. We're studying ourselves. Uh, so that's one part of it. You know, the other part is, you know, one of the things that characterizes this collection of neighborhoods has been a history of disinvestment. And um, you mean in you know, urban this, neighborhoods, particularly? Well, yeah, and, and these neighborhoods in particular that we're focused on mm-hmm. um, have had 20 years of, of no investment. And uh, so, you know, one way for the person on the street to understand the work that we're doing is, you know, we're we're going to be investing, you know, real money <laughs> into the neighborhood for, you know, what we hope everybody will agree uh, makes it, um, you know, sort of more aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, sort of improves the overall experience of living in these neighborhoods. So, you know, I, I liken it to any sort of major parks development or, you know, other, other kinds of city initiatives where an intentional development investment is being made, you know, really to improve the lives and quality of life for people who live in that community. So first and foremost, that's how we are having the conversation with the community. And the soonest you'd have some data on this would be, what, at a year into this five-year longitudinal study, right? Well, I, we will have air pollution data um, the soonest. Um, we won't really have um, good, um, solid health data for many years. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, two years is the soonest after planting that we would uh, likely see even early indications, but it, it could be a little longer than that. So I think we have to be patient. Heart disease is a, a progressive degenerative disease. It takes a little while. Uh, you know, but uh, we we have a very firm understanding of a lot of the mechanisms in heart disease development, and we're tracking very specifically at the molecular level, essentially, uh, the development of the disease, and then how uh, how we might see the green intervention in that development pathway. And so, I think that's what we're very excited about is using these, you know, sort of time-tested uh, pharmacological measures of uh, of the disease. As a, as a way to understand the health impact. Interesting. Of and um, Chris Hawkins of Nature Conservancy here in Colorado, I wanted to ask you, since Nature Conservancy not only is funding the massive amount of tree planting in Louisville, Kentucky, but has done quite a bit in urban 
conservation, sort of this intersection of urban conservation and social justice and health. Any examples like the Globeville neighborhood in Denver, for that matter? Have there been some health sort of tree planting type intervention? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the way I would couch it is that um, the Nature Conservancy, we're so lucky to be partnering uh, with uh, Louisville and NIH on this uh, study where we're really researching and trying to understand the science-based case, trying to really get to a place where we have strong evidence uh, for nature as a solution. At the same time, we need to be thinking about the real complexity of working in, in urban environments and better understanding the social, economic, um, the infrastructure uh, complexities of actually trying to put nature into cities. And so in Globeville, we're working deeply with uh, community And describe where Globeville is, Absolutely. for those who don't know. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, here in Colorado, it's right where I-25 and I-70 come together. So if you're on your way to the airport, uh, you pass right through those three neighborhoods. So needless to say, traffic, et cetera, major air pollution exactly. pocket. And yep. what about the uh, sort of socioeconomic racial demographics of the neighborhood? Yeah, primarily, um, you know, historically, actually, Eastern European uh, community, uh, primarily Latino community at this point, um, you know, definitely underserved and one that's been underinvested in and a place where um, air pollution is a real challenge. And so is a lack of tree canopy. They have about 10% tree canopy across the city. We're talking about 19% and then, you know, most established parts of the city, about 40%. So a place where investing in trees for shade and air quality can go a long way. Wow. And uh, this is just getting underway, Just right? getting underway, working closely with the community to understand how they want to solve this problem. And final question for you, Jeanette Hung. I'm curious, are you very hopeful, and if so, why, that we're coming to a point where we will have more insurance companies cover it? Well, first, more data to actually prove that Nature Rx is as good as a lot of drugs in, in different scenarios, but that we are seeing more or will see more insurance companies and hospitals cover this. Yeah, so as the healthcare industry focuses more on whole person health, I think we're going to see more of uh, this focus that we, because we know that healthcare delivery and also genetics is only half the story. The other half is environmental factors and social factors. Mm. So as we look at factors such as access to green space, physical activities, and how that impacts health. And I think the healthcare set setting and healthcare practitioners going to look at more ways such as greening and, and nature time as a way for their patients to build social connectivity with each other, um, good for reducing stress and also improving physical activities levels. Fascinating. Well, we'll definitely continue on this topic in the months ahead. Our three guests were Dr. Ted Smith, a pharmacologist and toxicologist at the University of Louisville in Kentucky and director of the Envirome Institute there. Thanks so much, Ted, for coming on the show. Thank you. And Christopher Hawkins, Urban Conservation Program Manager at the Nature Conservancy in Colorado. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Susan. And Jeanette Hung, Principal and Owner of one of her many titles, uh, JWG Global. It's a management consulting and research think tank in Colorado, the focusing on this nexus uh, between environmental conservation and public health. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlinder. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the new album Falling Flowers by Eric Deutsch. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comments line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.